Amen. All right, we are going to be reading Malachi 3, verses 7 through 12. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, said the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. This is the word of the Lord. Right, let's pray together. Father God, we ask this morning that you would tune our hearts to your word. God, that your spirit would help us to see more deeply the love you have shown us through Jesus Christ, who laid down his life so that we could come into your presence with confidence. God, let us experience your nearness this morning as we worship. God, that you would be glorified and that we would enjoy uh, your presence. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Good morning. How's everybody doing? You excited about this text? Yeah. This sermon is titled Genuine Stewardship, and it is about money. But we all love money, right? So you're excited. We love money. And if you're a visitor here, my first inclination is to apologize to you for showing up on the extremely rare Sunday morning that we talk about giving. But we often talk about how God is sovereign, and so his timing is always perfect. So I hope you are blessed by his word this morning. And this is our, our eighth week in the book of Malachi, and of all the scriptures that we have covered so far, this is likely the one that you've heard before, right? These verses have been used and abused by churches and pastors for decades to manipulate and coerce people to give up their money, especially by the prosperity gospel, I don't even like to call that prosperity false teachers, and what's crazy is that there's really not a widespread public outcry against these false teachers. The, the sad truth is that they are actually giving people exactly what they want, what their itching ears want to hear, as Paul said in 2 Timothy. And people are showing up in droves to buy what they are selling. Because if the blessings of God are for sale... If all it takes is a seed of financial faith, who's not going to swipe their card? Who's not going to? People don't want the real God of Malachi, the real God of Scripture. They don't 
They don't want a God who says, following me is going to be hard. It's going to cost you. They don't want to be purified by the refining fire of Christ. They want a God they can control with their money, like everything else in life. They want a God that serves their desires. The reason so many people in our society drink the Kool-Aid of this false teaching is because they think they can approach their faith like I approached school when I was a kid. So you can guess it wasn't in the most wonderful of ways, right? I can't count the number of times I heard from teachers and my wonderful parents, you're a really smart kid. You just need to apply yourself, right? Anybody get that? Now, it's very possible that I was just dumb and they were all nice. That <laughs> is very possible. But I know that they were right on some level because my internal motto for how I approach school was what is the least amount of work I can put in to get the desired result? How little effort can I exert to keep my teachers and my parents off my back? Sorry, Mom and Dad. And that's how many people often approach their faith. What is the least amount of effort or strain or discomfort that I can put in that will give me my desired results? It's, this, it's the same mentality that motivates people to find verses like our text today, which talk about tithing and blessings. And they think they can pull these verses out of context of this book and the whole Bible and all of redemptive history and apply them to their lives as a formula for affluence. It's ridiculous. As if tithing were the key to godliness. I, I give my 10%, therefore God must bless me. Forget about holiness or love, covenant faithfulness, or worship. God is the divine lottery ticket, and you just need enough faith to buy that ticket if you want to get the blessings. It really sounds absurd when you say it that way, but this is the message of these false teachers, of the prosperity teaching. And there are elements of this thinking that affect every one of us. There are times when maybe even subconsciously we give so that we can get. Where giving is checking this box of Christian duty, fulfilling our end of the bargain, or making up for a less than faithful week, paying a little bit of penance. We can so easily turn giving into a transaction with God rather than an offering of worship and adoration. It's, it's really similar to our marriage, where, where your call to love your spouse is first and foremost an act of worship to God. It is obedience to God. But the reality is that oftentimes, we often view our love towards our spouse just like giving. It's transactional. It comes with an expectation of reciprocation. And if we don't feel like our faithfulness is being reciprocated, we get frustrated. We may even withhold that love. 
Because sometimes our motivation to love is less about honoring God and more about what we will receive when we act rightly. Our love is about us. And that's how many approach giving. And, and honestly, I think we all struggle on some level with both of these things at times. When Christ is not our ultimate treasure, when we do not see him as more valuable than our comfort, when giving is not an act of worship but a begrudging duty, it simply means that Jesus is not the object of our worship, but a means to attain that which we truly love. And the Israelites were no different. They had bought into the lie that their ultimate joy would be found in this earthly kingdom, that God's purpose for their lives was to make them a great nation, to shower them with wealth and power. They had traded the truth of God for a lie. They had missed the reality that God's plan for his children is infinitely greater than they could ask or imagine. They could not see past their desire for the gifts of God to realize that the pearl of great price, the treasure hidden in that field, was God himself. That God is the gospel. So we're going to cover a lot of ground today, but everything that we're going to talk about can be summed up in this statement. That if you love God... You will use money to glorify him. And if you love money, you will use God to protect what you have and to get more of it. That's it. We're either using our resources to serve God's purposes, or we are using God to serve our purposes. So when we come to our text today, God accuses the Israelites of robbing him. And as we've grown accustomed to, the Israelites respond as if they're oblivious, right? Every time, how have we robbed you? To which God says, in your tithes and contributions. And when God talks about tithes and contributions, these are actually two different things. Tithe, as you may know, literally means tenth. It was one of the Many laws given to Moses at Mount Sinai, the Israelites were to give 10% of their income, money, produce, uh, livestock, to the priests. That's the tithe. But contributions were monies given over and above the tithe for festivals and various offerings. So we often like to point to the Old Testament as this evidence that we should give 10%. But the reality is that when you combine uh, the tithe and all of the various offerings from the Old Testament, it was like closer to 25% of their income, which is crazy, right? We like 10%. That's, that's better. But God focuses in this text specifically on the tithe. He says, and, and this is the, the, the verses that we all have heard Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I've heard that so many times on the television, it's startling. How many times can you be in the book of Malachi? 
So what's the purpose of tithing? What was the Old Testament purpose of tithing? And it really served three very specific purposes. It was used to support the priesthood. It was used to sustain the people of God. And it was used to bless the sojourners and orphans and widows in the city. That was the purpose of the tithe. So so the biblical design was to support the people of God and the surrounding community. And we often make the mistake of reading this text through the, the lens of our wonderful American individualism, right? We, we, we do that with most scriptures. As if it were saying, if I tithe, then I will be blessed. If I give money, then I will get more money. That's how the false teachers pitch it. They make it all about you and me. But God was not and very rarely is talking to individuals. He is speaking to the people of God as a whole. He doesn't say, bring your tithe and you will be rich. He says to the people of God, if you as my children are faithful in giving according to the law, test me and see if I will not pour down blessings on my people until there is no more need. And nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight. There's there's no mention of riches here, by the way. No shiny new cars, no California mansions. Sorry, California people. We got lots of you. Your mansions are awesome. It wasn't about individual affluence, but communal vitality and health. This was the point of the tithe from the beginning, to sustain the people of God and to bless the surrounding community. So if the Israelites had been faithfully tithing all along, their storehouses would have been full, and the blessings of God would have been upon them because of their faithfulness. This text isn't pointing to some special dispensation of blessing when they tithe. God was talking about the blessing that he had always intended for them through covenant faithfulness, when they walked in obedience. But as this entire book is made clear, the Israelites were not walking faithfully toward God or one another. And the result of their faithlessness was that rather than the the blessing that God had always intended, they were living under a curse. And so, what do we need to understand from this text? When faithfulness to God and one another captivates the hearts of God's people, when we love what he loves and live lives that reflect his heart, the community itself becomes the blessing of God. The windows of heaven are opened up and the blessings of God flow through the hearts and the lives of God's people. This is what we see in Acts chapter 4. And in so many ways, it's the opposite of what's going on in our text. In Acts chapter 4, verse 32, it says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things belonged to him was their own, but they had everything in common. 
and with great power. The apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. Love that. And we talk about these verses from Acts 4 a lot here at CCK. This has always been our vision, to be so saturated with the gospel of Jesus Christ that we are of one heart and one soul, to be a church where the gospel is proclaimed with power, and to be able to say whether we have 50 people or 500 people in this room that there is not a needy person among us. This is the blessing God intended for his people. So tithing was a legal institution in the Old Testament. It was part of the Mosaic law. It was intended to be to sustain and bless God's people. But what about now, right? What about the New Testament? What, what changed when Christ appeared? Is tithing commanded in Scripture? a good question. Thanks for asking. Tithing appears 29 times in the Old Testament and only five times in the New Testament. Jesus mentions tithing a few times in reference to the Old Covenant, but the apostles never once use the word. So the question is, why is tithing essentially absent from the New Testament? And to answer this question, we need to look at how Christ changed the way we understand the Old Testament law. We don't have a ton of time to spend here, but Romans chapter 7, verses 4 through 6, shed um, some light on our relationship with the law in the wake of Christ's coming. Romans 7, verses 4 through 6, Likewise, my brothers... You also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. You have died to the law so that you may belong to another. We are released from the law so that we may serve in a new way, in the way of the Spirit. Romans 10, chapter 4 says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. See, Christ fulfilled the law perfectly because we were unable to. And the wrath that we deserve because of our inability to live faithfully under the law was poured out on him. So the law is no longer the path to righteousness. Christ is. You will never check enough religious boxes. You will never give enough money. You will never love well enough to merit God's favor. This is why Christ came. 
to fulfill the law for us and to take the penalty of sin upon himself. And because of his perfect obedience to the law, all of the blessings of the Old Testament are found in him. He fulfilled the law perfectly for us so that in him we have all the blessings promised through the Old Covenant. Ephesians 1, chapter 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So here's what all this means. If Christ is the end of the law, if righteousness is through him alone, And if we have all of the promises of the Old Testament through Christ, then an honest assessment of Scripture must bring us to the conclusion that the law of tithing, as described in the Old Testament, is no longer binding on those who trust in Jesus Christ. Law-keeping is no longer the means to righteousness or blessing. Jesus is. In case you missed that, I'm the pastor that just told you that tithing is no longer the biblical picture of godly stewardship in the New Testament. And the reason I say that is because tithing is rooted in the law, not in the grace of Jesus Christ. It's an unpopular stance, as you can imagine, as a pastor, to say that tithing isn't necessary. Because a pastor's livelihood is kind of based upon giving. And the reality is that as a pastor, it's much easier to produce law-abiding tithers than it is to foster spirit-infused generosity. It's easy for me to give you rules and parameters and percentages and to tell you that this is what God requires for you to be faithful. But Christ didn't say, give me 10%. He said, give me your heart. He said, if you want to follow me, lay down your life. That's harder. Like, I take 10% all day, right? He wants everything. Romans 7 doesn't just say that we died to the law and we're released from the law. Through the body of Christ, it says, and now we belong to another. Now we are to bear fruit for God. Now we serve in a new way of the Spirit. We have been freed from the impossible task of gaining righteousness through the fulfillment of the law, and we have been united with Christ in his death and his resurrection. The law of tithing has been replaced with the call to faith and obedience. You were bought with a price. You belong to another. Now we serve in the new way of the Spirit. It is a life poured out. It is a life of generosity. It is a life of service. It's a life laid down. And listen, We don't talk about money here very often. And it's probably because I grew up in this building in a church that talked about money a lot. I have a bad taste in my mouth. 
And I don't want that for you all. We're not preachers of L.A. I keep picking on California. Can't imagine why. Right? We don't have, I don't, I don't have a plan for a private jet yet. I don't even like to leave my yard. So it's probably not ever going to happen. And so the temptation for me is to say, let's not talk about money because it's awkward. Let's just talk about Jesus. Amen. Let's just follow Jesus. Let's talk about what Jesus talks about. Let's just love Jesus and love one another. But here's the problem. It's the Bible. It messes up everything. If you read it, seriously, Jesus talked about money a lot. Jesus talked about money more than heaven and hell combined. Almost a quarter of Jesus' words and stories in Scripture when he was on earth had to do with money. So money must be important, right? If we're going to talk about Jesus, we're going to have to deal with money. If we're going to follow Jesus, if we're going to love what he loves, if we're going to value what he values, we must deal with the issue of money. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And he told story after story about how we spend our money, how we invest our money, how we give our money. Because what we do with our money is an indication of what we love most. We know that. As I said at the beginning, if we love God, we will use our money to glorify him. And if we love money, we will use God to get more. Jesus said you cannot serve both God and money. He said only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. We've all heard these verses. We talked about them not too long ago, but when we look around, like we are the rich people that Jesus is talking about. It's as difficult for you and me to get into the kingdom of heaven as it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Why? Because we live in a world that thinks money equates to security, where possessions equate to joy. And no matter how hard we try, there is always this voice whispering in our ears saying, if I just had that over and over, then I would be happy. Then I would be secure. Then I would be safe. Then I would be generous, right? If I just had a little more. And it's all at our fingertips, right? Click of a mouse, swipe of a credit card. So if you don't believe that we are the rich people Jesus is talking about, we can just throw ourselves into a biblical story like the rich young ruler, right? That one always makes us cringe a little bit. Like when Jesus comes and says, hey, you're nailing it. Just one more thing I need you to do. Just sell all your stuff and give it away and come follow me. What's the, the first thought that goes through your mind, right? No problem, Jesus, on it. Right? Where do I dump this junk? Or would our story be more like that of the rich young ruler who went away sorrowful because he had great wealth, great possessions? 
Good news, Jesus doesn't want your money. He's not asking you to sell everything. He didn't want the rich young ruler's money. Jesus wants your heart. And for the rich young ruler, he had lived a very religious life. He had checked all the religious boxes, but the treasure of his heart, the one thing that he could not live without was not Jesus. It was his standard of living. It was his comfort in this world. He found more security and more hope in his wealth than he did in the promises of God. It's that simple. And just to be clear, money's not the enemy, okay? Money's good. Sin is bad. Sin is the enemy. Money's okay. Whether the number in your bank account ends with 10 zeros or two, sorry, God gave you that money for one specific reason. The reason that we have money to, is, is to show the world that we love God more than we love our money. To show the world that money is not our treasure, but that Christ is our treasure. Because the way that we use our money will tell the world, and it will tell ourselves where our hope is. You see, by the nature of where we live, we are faced with two Gospels all the time. The Gospel of salvation through Jesus Christ and the Gospel of the American dream. And they will always be competing for our affections. And Jesus made clear, we cannot serve two masters. If you want all that the world has to offer, if the thing that drives you is climbing the ladder to, to get this comfort through affluence, finding security in what you have, if that is the trajectory, you forfeit Christ. And if you want Christ, if he is your treasure and your hope in this life, you will be continually dying to this world and to yourself and to this flesh. We will be trusting in the eternal blessings and promises of God. So I guess the question remains, how then should we give? If we've been set free from the law of tithing, then what does giving look like? The New Testament doesn't talk about tithing, but it does say a lot about giving. It talks about giving cheerfully and generously and liberally and sacrificially and proportionately. And it talks about supporting God's work through the church. But the heart of giving in the New Testament is not rooted in some percentage. It's rooted in a person. Christ is the model for giving in the New Testament. So I can't give you a percentage. I'm not going to tell you what you should give. That is between you and God. But my call as a pastor is to, is to plead for your hearts to fight for your affections, to point you to Christ 
and to implore you to not be overtaken by the deception of wealth, but rather let your giving be a reflection of how much you value Christ in your heart. Not just with your money, but with your time, with your thoughts, with your devotion, in the way that you invest in relationships with people in this room. In Matthew 16, 26, Jesus says, What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? And so I just want to close and let that sink in, that question. What is it that we love and pursue most in this life? And what are we willing to give up to obtain that which we love most? Let's pray together. Father God, we confess that there are so many loves competing for our affections. There are so many claims of life and joy, but they are temporal and they are fleeting. God, help us be a people who find our hope and our joy in you. People who set our minds on the things that are above. People who use our gifts and our talents and our resources to proclaim your glory to the ends of the earth, God. We ask that you would increase our faith. God, that we as a people together would truly live as a city on a hill and that the world would see us and see your blessing upon this community and long to know the God that we serve.